Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Sarah Jane Butler. Sarah Jane is the CEO and founder of Parental Choice, a HR company in Surrey which provides practical and emotional working life solutions for employee well-being to businesses. Sarah Jane, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure having you. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is about gathering your perspective on leadership. So what I would like to understand, Sarah Jane, is what that word leader actually means to you, first and foremost. I think to me, it means about taking care and helping others to succeed. Um, I think principally, um, as I was pondering this question earlier today, for me, it's taking responsibility for the people around us, ensuring that they are in the best place possible to achieve the things that you are asking them to do. I don't think it necessarily has to be a CEO. Um, it can be anybody. It can be a line manager. It can be a colleague. It can be anyone within them. But I think um, leadership is something that is learned um, and it's principally about, it's not about being at the forefront. It's not being a general and leading people from the front. I think it's about taking care and helping others um, to be the best they can be. It's a really interesting perspective you have there, Sarah Jane, on their leadership being something that you learn um, over the course of um, your life and your career. Because there may be some people out there that might think that leaders are born with certain innate qualities, for example, maybe a certain self-motivation, a certain drive. Would you say that that's maybe true to an extent? I think I think if you are a natural leader, um, you, you have that innate drive to succeed. But I think natural leaders are ones that, that bring their teams along with them, um, that have good communication skills, that have a good empathy with the people around them. Um, I've worked with many people who are solitary souls um, and are amazing at what they do themselves, but are not necessarily good at communicating that to other people or inspiring other people to come along with them on the journey to get something done. And communication is hugely important in being a leader, isn't it? Because it's part and parcel of remembering that being a leader isn't just a one-man operation, a one-woman operation. It's very much about a collective, isn't it? Absolutely. I think you can't be a leader without communication. Um, You can't have a successful business without communication. And being open honest and straight with people is really important and um, if they don't believe in you they won't believe in in the values of the business or in what they're trying to do so whether you are running a small team a small project a small business like parental choice or a massive business like you know marks and spencers or deloitte i think the people who you have with you have to believe in what you're doing and the only way they're going to believe that is if you communicate with them what your goals are what your values are and what you're trying to achieve and do you think that um company culture is also incredibly important in getting that message across as well completely in fact uh just before the covid19 um hit us parental choice sat down with all members to actually look at what our values are um not just values that we want to be known at known for externally but also internally um And it was a really interesting session because it actually came down to actually what our culture was all about. And that is about, you know, that we're all human and that we all need support and we all need help. 
um, to achieve what we want to achieve. And whether that's externally um, as an employee trying to, you know, juggle work-life balance, especially at the moment through COVID-19, or whether it's trying to trying to uh, deal with mental health issues or the menopause, or whether it's dealing with trying to help with elderly parents, for example, um, it's all about being human and providing a solution to that to that issue. And internally, it's exactly the same. Um, you know, I fundamentally believe that you you don't live to work; you work to live. Mm-hmm. So everybody who works for me, for example, works for a, a maximum of four days a week, nine till three, um, because I think you have to you have to give people the trust and the communication for them to, to want to work, but also um, to thrive through working. And I think that is really important as a culture to instill from the very beginning. And individual uh, business leaders who have instilled a culture such as, that, such as that will be reaping the benefits at the moment, won't they? Because their teams are likely to be very productive when working remotely, when there's no sort of human contact as such, other than, of course, through um, mobile applications such as Zoom, for example, which has really uh, sort of taken off at the minute. Yes, I mean, I think if people believe in what you're trying to do and and are happy to, you know, and, and can take instructions, I guess, or take leadership um, remotely, then it, now leadership is, is more important than ever because if people don't respect you and don't believe in what you're doing, they won't do it. I mean, they'll just stop. I, I, it's, it's as simple as that. If you If you can't, show people that you care if you can't pull together as a team then you're not going to achieve results and you're not going to get through this this strange time that we're going through and it's often said as well that times of difficulty times of crisis do quite often bring out the best in people by essentially thrusting them out of their comfort zone do you think that that is an integral part of the experience that one needs to undergo in their career in order to develop both as an employee as a leader facing difficulties and not just as i say being thrust out of that comfort zone in a way i think there always comes a crunch period where you um you have to face up to to some kind of hardship and you have to be able to get over that, um, whether in your personal life or whether in your professional life. Um, I think it's very clear to me with my team, those who have really stepped up and gone beyond um, what is required of them and and really actually shone um, and actually served as an inspiration for other people within my team. Um, I think each of us will have a moment, whether it's this COVID-19 period or whether it's other periods in our career where things don't go the way we want them to, where we actually have to make a decision um, that is not what we expected and, and how you overcome those obstacles and how you, how you deal with them actually makes you a better person, a better leader, I think, than the good times. I would certainly um, agree with that. And um, something that you mentioned um, earlier on as well, Sarah Jane, is remembering the fact that we are all human as well. And part of that as well is recognising that we do have limitations because leaders can sometimes in a business context, especially be under quite a lot of pressure to have all of the answers all of the time. And it's about it's important to recognise that that's not always going to be the case, is it? Leaders themselves, just like employees, will make mistakes and also have to learn from those mistakes as well. And it's all part of that wide learning process. Yes, I think anybody in a team has to understand that their line manager or their CEO or, or their director or whoever it might be, they are human. They have bad days too. I mean, they have they are struggling 
with their own situations, whether it's dealing with their children at home because they haven't had any sleep the night before, or worrying about um, worrying about their elderly parents who they can't see, for example, at the moment. So I think it's really important to actually understand that the people you're working for are they have feelings, they have difficulties, they have issues that they need to deal with. I mean, that doesn't give you license for somebody to be completely rude, but sometimes maybe if you're not getting the response that you want, it, it's a good time to kind of sort of take a step back and, and look at them as people. I mean, no one is perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone needs to learn. Um, this is the situation in itself is, is creating bizarrely enough huge amounts of opportunities for people because they're having to suddenly look at what they've done before and turn it on its head and say well actually how can we do things differently now um and it takes it takes guts and it takes courage and people have to understand that to to lead a team where people are constantly expecting you to to know the answers or to know what's right or to know where to go it it can be hard work and it can be tough and i think that's why pulling together as a team will achieve results rather than relying on one person. Yes, I would um, certainly um, agree with that. And um, if you could um, essentially offer uh, some advice from uh, your experience of handling uh, this uh, pandemic um, to the next generation of emerging leaders, what sort of advice do you think that you would give them? Take a very big, big, deep breath and understand and believe in what you're trying to do you need to look through to the end because there will be there will be an end to this we will be out of lockdown and and sooner or later there will be some kind of normality that will come back and i think the key thing is to look forward six months rather than get too bogged down in the day-to-day you have teams to do that you have people around you to do that um but but strive to think how you're going to survive and thrive after this rather than necessarily getting bogged down in the minutiae um, of, of the here and now. Mm. I think that's very, very sound advice indeed for anybody um, in a leadership role or is about to embark on their first day in a leadership role, especially in these times. Um, we talked an awful lot, Sarah Jane, of course, about um, your own uh, model of leadership. But what would you say have been some of the influences behind that? Um, I think for me, the the leaders I have most respected and admired have been the ones that have inspired me to do more. Um, they have been not necessarily, you know, great CEOs or, or, um, or well-known people. I would say they are definitely, um, they're people who have inspired me to achieve more, to try my hardest, um, to have belief in myself. Um, and I think leaders like that or people like that um, are the ones who, who should be lauded and, and praised. I think uh, that's a very interesting point because there is the temptation when we think of leaders and leadership as a whole to think of individuals who are in the public eye, such as celebrities, sports personalities, politicians, for example. But in the business world especially, um, such good examples of leadership can quite easily go under the radar. Um, Do you think that good leadership is as recognised and indeed as celebrated as much as it should be in this country in light of that? No, not really. And I think very much for one of the reasons you've just said is that people often view or, or associate the fact that you're in the public eye with being a leader. Um, I don't think the two necessarily go together. I think there are a lot of unsung heroes, um, <laughs> just take the NHS for a start, mm. um, 
uh, I think there are a lot of unsung heroes that are absolutely fabulous leaders who probably do not want to be in the public eye. Um, I think there's a certain um, egotistical nature of being in the public eye. Um, I think it takes a certain type of character. Um, and I don't necessarily, and sometimes that can match with great leadership, um, but sometimes not. And I think we often think that maybe our politicians or our celebrities or, you, you know, to name but a few, should be the, you know, the leaders of our country. But they're not necessarily the ones that inspire. And actually, it could very much be that your line manager who just goes carefully about their day-to-day work, making sure that you are happy, making sure that you are believe in yourself and that you're inspired and you're doing the best job you can, they're probably greater leaders than the ones we typically name as being so. I can certainly see where you're coming from there, Sarah Jane. And I think it is important to understand that good leaders don't necessarily have to stick their head above the parapet, do they? They can very easily behind the scenes, get on with their work, work on a one-to-one basis with people and also inspire people without being in that public eye. Exactly right. Yeah, completely. Completely. I think that you, as I said, to be a good leader doesn't mean that you have you know, the best qualifications necessarily or the greatest length of experience in that in that sense. Um, sometimes the best leaders can be those that, as I say, look look to, to pulling the teams around them together, to creating a focus, to, to pulling, as I said, to, to creating a focus, but also to kind of setting a goal to which all need to get to. So whether it's in a project, whether at school, for example, I mean, Leadership starts that that early on in yeah. primary school, um, or whether it's at, with the NHS, you know, pulling together a team to to deal with the, the, the nightmares that we're going through at the moment, or whether it's even um, our key workers who are working in supermarkets right now. I mean, each one of those could be a leader if what they're doing is inspiring others and pulling mm. them together as a team. And I think um, the younger generations um, would certainly do well to uh, remember that um, little bit of advice um, as well, Sarah Jane. And if we do um, stay on the topic of the future before we do uh, wrap things up um, on today's programme, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for parental choice and what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly in navigating COVID-19 and getting beyond the other side of the pandemic too. Well, for us at Parental Choice, it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about thriving and not just surviving. Um, Our focus now is on helping SMEs, small, medium-sized businesses, who are keen to retain the talent that that have kept them going through this period, are keen to support their employees and ensure that they are in the best place possible um, for their businesses to achieve. So for us at Parental Choice, we are concentrating on helping businesses support their employees um, through mental health issues, childcare issues, elder care issues. We are setting up, well, our goal is to set up um, a a resource for each and every single one of those to be able to tap into such that their employees know that they've got their backs. Um, And I think that in itself will help productivity um, it will help retention, and I think that in itself will help kickstart the economy because we need good people right now to get us back on track. Um, we need people to stand up to the fore and say, right, you know, 
we're back in there. Um, we're going to do our best to keep the economy coming. And I think if, if they can take charge of doing the best they can do to get this economy coming, we are going to do our best to help support them and make sure that their well-being is cared for. I can certainly see uh, where you're coming from there, uh, Sarah Jane. And it seems like there's a lot of ambition there, despite of all the uncertainty um, at the moment. And what I think as well would actually be fantastic in a few months' time as the mist starts to clear, as it were, is if we could actually revisit this and have you back on the air with us, just to look at this retrospectively and just see how parental choice is doing and how those developments are playing out. But for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today for the listeners' benefit. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure and I'd be more than happy to help at any time. I've really enjoyed today, Sarah Jane. Thank you so much for your time once again. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. That is the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz, and that's coming up just next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in, uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA has been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to um, 
kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena. And that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt, I think uh, it maybe Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. uh, occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Lizzie, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um the better I think because that then will start to promote a culture of of savings and investments which we so badly need in our in 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 our um in our country. Without a doubt it's because and again you've hit the nail on the head because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as um, 
uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ti time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority with the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, uh, Liz. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that that we've still got a little way to go because. Um, whilst you know, thirty first of January came and went. Um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well. We don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the. Um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for, for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book. That makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter mm. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Euro in Europe, England, or U the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece, you know. Famous fish aren't they? Indeed, I mean, absolutely, um, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. 
yeah. now you, you you mentioned there at least uh, the role of uh, of course regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously uh, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA. Um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part, I, I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the, the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. (laughs) But if, let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one, just just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system, and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected 
and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again. It's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i, I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually mm. but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we 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 have been lobbying uh, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it, um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just. Um, Kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of other of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year, uh, that has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things, and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. 
Um, but it's been it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity, perhaps, and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.